Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. It is August 11th. I am your host, Harrison Cayley, and joining me in the studio is Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. Today we are going to be discussing an article recently published on the online magazine Quillette by Luke Graham. The article was titled, Toxic Masculinity and Gender Equity in the Australian Defense Force. So we're going to be reading portions of this article commenting on it and bringing in some other sources as well and some other articles because it is one that I had not thought of really. I hadn't considered it. I hadn't thought about it until reading a book that we've mentioned on the show several times in the past, Stephen Baskerville's New Politics of Sex. He has just a pretty short chapter in there dealing with sex politics and the military And like I said, I hadn't known much about it. But when you start reading it, you realize just what a fascinating subject it really is. And it's kind of amazing that we we really only hear one side of the story, as is usual, when discussing anything related to identity politics, and specifically the new gender politics of the last, well, it seems to be just the last few years, but it has been going on for decades. And I guess getting worse over the decades, or at least either turning into something that it wasn't originally, or um, even when it first came about, there were the seeds of what have come uh, today. So on that note, the article that uh, Graham wrote is in specific reference to the Australian Defense Force. Graham is, um, well, he did spend six years in the Australian Defense Forces, and he's the founder of a change consultancy group, the Milked Almond, and he's doing graduate studies in social psychology and change management. The article starts out by talking about the Australian Defence Forces and how they've been um, they've been subject to a number of scandals recently. I hadn't heard of most of them. We won't get into them specifically, but um, he lists them off. The ADFA sex scandal, Jedi Council, various hazing rituals, death symbols, and... HMAS success, to name a few. So I guess these are just a number of the, well, gender-related scandals that have come out. And these uh, are alleged to to make the Australian Defense Forces a petri dish for toxic masculinity. Now, he starts out by basically acknowledging that there may be some, um, that well, there are some scandals going on. There's probably bad stuff going on in the in the Australian military, as is the case, I think, with every military that I've that I've heard about, because about. <laughs> because uh, no matter no matter what military it is, I've you know if, I've seen it in the news where th- there are scandals all over the place, and in places where you don't expect it, you know, so called you know Western um, progressive countries where you, you find out the military are doing nasty things. Well, um, you know, it is the military after all, and we'll be getting into that. But um, he continues, um, in light of these scandals, he writes, Some of this criticism has been so strident that past and present military leaders have had no choice but to commission reports and inquiries into standards and practices within the ADF and to implement various culture change initiatives, including Pathway to Change, New Generation Navy, Adaptive Army, and New Horizon. All of these initiatives place significant emphasis on greater integration of women into the respective services, but offer limited reasoning other than catchphrases like diversity, equity, and modernizing. All three services, 
that is uh, military, Navy, and Air Force, are now working toward a target of female representation by 2023. The Navy and Air Force are working towards 25%, and the Army is working toward 15%. The progress toward these targets, among other commentary on gender issues in the ADF, is detailed in the annual Women in the ADF report. Over recent years, Australian media outlets have highlighted issues with the ADF's methods of achieving these quotas. As of writing, the Defence Force Recruitment website advertises female-only incentives, including the choice of where to work, when to enlist, shorter initial minimum periods of service, as well as preparation courses. A reduction in the initial minimum period of service makes applicable service women eligible for the Australian Defence Medal years sooner than their male counterparts, and this has provoked resentment among veterans. So to start out with, what do we see? Uh, what, what sounds familiar? Well, this is affirmative action, and which is something that we've talked about and seen in other areas, such as in the workplace, in universities, where a perceived oppressed minority, in this case um, women in the military, is then given a kind of preferential treatment, and the category for their inclusion in the institution is which identity group they belong to and not their actual merits. Mm -hmm. So right away we can see this is going to be a problem because um, what, do you, what do you get when you're looking for someone to fill a position, whether it's in a school, the military, any job, what are you looking for, right? You're looking for the best person to do the job. Mm -hmm. If you are a, a sane businessman or businesswoman or just sane leader of any organization, what are you going to look for? You're going to look for who does the best job. And it's not going to matter what color their skin is or if they're a male or female. Those things may come into the picture in certain situations. Like, let's say you're a film director and you're casting a male lead role. Obviously, you're going to be looking for a male. So, of course, I mean, there are obvious instances where there's going to be what will be perceived as discrimination when... Really, it's, you'd have to be stupid to call it discrimination. It's just common sense. If you're casting a male lead role, you cast a male. Unless you're doing a picture about, you know, a trans person. Or, right. or, but, or there even are cases where you have had men or women play other roles, you know, like they used to do in Shakespeare's time, where, um, where it's the makeup and the, just the presentation that makes it work. Mm -hmm. And that can happen too, but it's not a common practice. And if you're actually going for believability in your film, you're just going to cast a dude or a woman if that's what the role calls for. N now, in a, so in a job, if you're looking for the person that does the job best, you're going to hire them based on how well they can do the job. And if you get rid of that category, get rid of, the, of that standard for hiring, then you're going to have people who, or you're still going to get people, I, or, you know, hopefully, that can do the job, but they're not going to be the best that you can get. You're basically going to be going for someone that's, you know, tier two. You're not going to end up getting the results that you want to achieve if you're just kind of using common sense and doing your job. Right. So in the military, they're actually setting quotas. So that means that it's, this is what Justin Trudeau did when he picked his cabinet in the, you know, in the Canadian government. Um, he said, okay, I, I want 50% females and 50% males. And the pool of people that he had to choose from 
was, I don't know, I can't remember the numbers exactly. I think it was like maybe 15 to 20% female and the rest male. So there was a, a vast majority of, of um, government you know, members who were male and the rest female. Now, if you were to just, just look at those people, well, if, like Jordan Peterson says, if he were to do his job and be responsible at his job, he would have looked at all those people regardless of their sex and just found out which ones were the best. If you happen to be a man, you get the job. If you happen to be a woman, great, you get the job. doesn't matter. And so what are the chances that the 50% of his cabinet came from that minority of the, of the women, uh, of the potential candidates? Um, well, it's possible, but it's unlikely. Um, and, and that's even regardless, that's regardless of, of the issue at hand, because the, the main issue is that he, he made the, the, the criteria that you are a woman. <laughs> you have to be a woman to get this part, not because you're going to do the job better or anything. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but simply because you're a woman. Now that is <laughs> in any other context, that would be insane. And be like, okay, I want to hire this many black people, this many white people, this many trans people, this many homosexuals, um, this many white cisgender people. It's like, well, for, for the for the mere uh, ability to say uh, we have diversity, right? We have equity. We have modernizing. Now, the 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 thing about this, obviously, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting case study in 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 this whole kind of ideological enforcement of. Um, of, of equal rights, because when you think of the military, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, good or not, is that it's a hyper-masculine institution. Mm -hmm. uh, everything about it speaks to the, uh, the physical abilities of, of males. And, and not only that, I mean, yes, there's a, a great deal of indoctrination. You know, during training, men are, are um, soldiers are... Um, they're addressed by their last name. The purpose of the training and, and the whole indoctrination is to have them kind of uh, exist for one another, to, to lose their individuality, uh, well, in a and sense. Really, and really to turn them into killing machines. Yes. Like that's what a, a military is. It is a, not the domestication of violence, but the, the, the exploitation of violence, and arguably for, for good reasons. I mean, for as long as there has been civilization, there have been there's been warfare, and and you know one tribe attacking another, and when that happens, you either submit or you defend yourself. And on either side of the of the equation, if you're the aggressor or the defender, you need warriors. And even then, like, w what is the initial form of warfare? Even if if there was one before, you know, people were battling each other. Well, it was the battle against animals it was hunting mm -hmm. and to be a, to be a hunter you have to be fit you have to be violent you have to be in top shape right and you have to there there's a a certain um numbing of of the natural empathy that a lot of people have some people don't have it and not just psychopaths like some people can kill an animal without feeling any kind of remorse or very little other people are so squeamish and uh, you know sensitive that they can't be around you know, a bloody carcass, and they can't participate in that kind of violence. Now, what the military does is it tries to it tries to get its recruits to be able to kill on the battlefield. They learn methods of killing, and and they have to be in top shape because if you well, combat is hard. 
and you can learn you can learn that very easily just by doing martial arts and trying to engage in um, one-on-one you know hand-to-hand combat for five minutes mm-hmm. like it's exhausting and and it's more than that because well modern you could argue that modern warfare takes away that element a lot like you know it's people flying or flying drones or people um, you know dropping bombs on cities and then you just go in and mop up but um, in combat operations, it can get, um, and it does get, very difficult. And there can be the possibility of hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into that just a bit later because there's a, there's a bit in the article that will we'll deal with that. Um, but just to comment on the, the first bit I already read about the, <clears throat> these female-only incentives in the context of other affirmative action... Well, the the natural thing to expect from this, aside from getting um, a, a lower performance output than you would have liked originally, is that it breeds resentment among those who are not part of the privileged class. So, the, so in this case, it's the males who are being called privileged, and the the military being called a, a den of toxic masculinity. Whereas in reality, because of these affirmative action policies, it is the women that are getting preferential treatment and like uh like my jock dropped when i read these things about uh your jock dropped my, my what did i say your jock dropped my jock dropped jaw jaw dropped <laughs> but uh that's a propos uh when the the type of incentives that they're offering like where to work when to enlist shorter minimum periods of sentence uh or service sentence another freudian slip there um so naturally it has provoked resentment among veterans because here here are you know all the rest of the people mm-hmm. you know who happen to be male that are joining the military and finding that they're getting the short end of the stick here pretty much in every regard and that's only to be expected and you'd think that you'd be able to predict that <laughs> it's like okay well what are, what's going to happen when okay well just just assume for a second that this that the military is a den of toxic masculinity because if we accept that term in like at, in any measure then it would be not as a not as applicable to all males but to you know the really the really nasty males because there are nasty males just like there are nasty females and um a lot of the nasty males happen to be the really violent ones, the ones that go to prison. Well, I wouldn't sit, call, I wouldn't put the put military men in that same category, but they are violent, and maybe, uh, well, because that's bred into them for one, mm-hmm. and maybe violent men tend to towards the military. I don't know the statistics on that, but like assume for for a minute that maybe the military does have more you know violent mean men than average. Then what are what do you expect to happen? Um, in regard to those men who you've already like um, deemed to be toxically masculine, when you start giving the females in the military preferential service, do you think that will make them any less toxic, any less mean and, and misogynistic, or might it make them more so? And might that resentment that is bred make the, the make men who wouldn't? have previously been considered toxically masculine to then become a little toxic in their relationships with the women. Because what happens when, when you get resentful people? Well, they start, they start wanting revenge. Mm-hmm. They start wanting to, they, they get angry. They have these, you know, bottled up negative, violent emotions towards the people that they see as their oppressors, the people that are getting either privileged treatment 
or you know the ones that have gotten ahead not on their own merit but because of special treatment well that's exactly what the the yeah. the leftist identity politics thing is premised on that's the whole idea that there are people that get ahead in life not because of their own merit but just because of who they who they are white privilege right or male privilege well it's the exact same dynamic in fact it's the dynamic that the leftists are seeing but the dynamic the leftists are seeing isn't really there at least not to the degree they think it is mm -hmm. and they are the ones instituting that exact scenario that exact dynamic Yes. And then what? Are they supposed to be shocked to find out that their policies breed resentment and create more negative feeling towards the people they're trying to save? That, that's the irony of the whole thing. You know, they are creating the very situations, uh, the very resentment, uh, the very um, hatred in, in the worst cases that they would seek to avoid. And, uh, and the reason they are is because uh, th this amounts to a, a kind of a, a willful play for power and nothing less. You know, well, and virtue signaling. And virtue signaling. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back several months to James Damore's uh, letter uh, to Google, to, to the head honchos, and how he affirmed quite logically and reasonably how uh, there are certain jobs that, for whatever reason, are better suited to males than females, which is why you have a higher representation of, of males doing, say, engineering or, or, or some other things. And, uh, and for just voicing this idea, he was fired with extreme prejudice. And so a part of the problem here, I think, is that you're supposed to, you know, hear these terms like diversity, equity, and modernizing, and automatically, you know, a light's supposed to go off on your head and, and accept these things as good uh, or accept the policies that, that are being implemented uh, with, the, um, with the title or the, or the designation of uh, diversity, equity, and modernizing and just, and just kind of blindly accept it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what James Damore and, and others have not done. They've, they've questioned uh, these, these descriptors. Uh, they've, they've questioned the thinking behind this type of reverse discrimination. So this is an especially interesting uh, topic, I think, because unlike a, a position like a, an engineer or, or a, um, a programmer or a, or a writer or, or a doctor or some of the more uh, kind of civilian positions, you're talking about an institution, a, uh, a job, that is not only traditionally male, but hyper-male. Mm -hmm. And basically you're attempting not only to uh, emasculate it, for lack of a better word, but, but emasculate the, uh, the, the males who are already part of the institution. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there are lots of implications here, including the geopolitical, that we're going to get into a little later on. But maybe we should just continue on with, with this article. Yeah. So additionally... Uh, Graham writes, various Defense Force recruitment employees have reported receiving directives to prioritize female candidates over males, as well as closing off some jobs entirely for male candidates. The women in the ADF report for 2016 to 2017 includes data that could support these claims. The average recruitment period for female candidates is reported to be considerably shorter than for their male counterparts in almost every measured category. Past defense chiefs have also boasted of the stern punishment administered to ADF personnel who contravene directives to rigorously implement these quotas. 
Concerns with preferential treatment do not end at the recruitment process. Fitness standards for service personnel also differ according to gender, as well as service and age. This means equally aged men and women in each service are expected to attain different standards of fitness. This in itself represents a challenge since both genders complete fitness tests together and are therefore directly exposed to this double standard from their very first day of service. In spite of this policy, many service women elect to continue their fitness assessment at the same level as their male colleagues, which is one small contribution to reducing the cultural divide. The rejection of preferential treatment in the ADF is not just isolated to annual fitness tests. In fact, the 2012 Review into the Treatment of Women in the Australian Defence Force, led by then-Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick, includes the following passage. ADF women strongly believe that when they are singled out, it makes it harder to, for them to fit in. Highly resistant to any initiative being directed solely at them, ADF women view identical, not differential treatment, as the path to, to delivering equality. This is most likely, in part, to avoid the backlash that inevitably trails any treatment perceived as preferential. <laughs> so, right there, I mean... Again, this is typical identity politics policy where the people that you are presuming to fight for and like whose rights you are presuming to uphold and protect are the very ones that your policies hurt. And in fact, they're, these are the people, the, the people you're trying to help actually don't like your policies. Mm -hmm. They think they're bunk. So these women are actually doing the right thing. The ones that opt out and say, no, I, wanna, I want the same fitness level um, in the fitness standards as the men. You know, I want to, because think about it. It's like he said, wrote earlier and that we talked about what happens when you give preferential treatment. It's obvious. And like she, like Broderick writes here, it's inevitable. It'll provoke bad feelings on the part of the men. It would, it would be like any other category. If we forget about men and women, for instance, let's just say, um, you know, redheads. <laughs> so redheads in the military have lower standards than anyone else, right? Well, obviously, then if there's a bunch of redheads and they, they only have to do like 10 push-ups where the rest have to do 100, I'm exaggerating here, of course, it's just a dumb example, then the, the redheads are going to be the ones that are going to get picked on like in school or beat up. There's, there's going to be resentment and it's not going to produce a, a, like a unified whole. You're not going to have a, a, a combat-ready unit where everyone's working together. You're just going to have a bunch of infighting. So... It makes sense, and and these women, um, you know, kudos, good for them for for doing this. The problem is, I don't know if this is the case in the Australian Defense Force, but in the in the U.S., this is one of the the things that Baskerville points out in his book, is that when women started joining the military and these uh, gender politics and gender policies started coming into play, um, they didn't have different standards for men and women. They kept standards the same, but they lowered the standards universally. Mm -hmm. So, it, And there's a reason they lowered the standards. It's because none of the women could match up to the standards that were set for the men previously. So they lowered all the standards so that women, could, women in the military could achieve a level, um, and, you know, uh, I, I won't even say in a, uh, a good level, just a level. You know, they, they, they pretty much leveled the playing field so that the, the standards were much too easy for the men, essentially. 
So it was a struggle for the women to get to those, and they worked hard, and they were able to meet those standards. But for the men, that was way below what they could push themselves to. So what happens when you lower standards for everyone? Well, again, <laughs> so let's say, you know, you're hiring for a position, and you want, like, the top 1% of, of your candidates, basically. You want the best of the best. Okay, well, if you go for that 1%, you're going to get that 1%, and you're going to get a, you know, a good recruit. Now, if you lower the standard to, let's say, the top 20%, then you're taking the shotgun method. Now, you're still going to get someone that's better than, you know, 80% of the population, but is that what you really want? Mm -hmm. It's like, because in any field, right, um, you know, being a musician, I think about music. So if you're hiring someone for, you know, a part, um, you know, to, pl to play, a, play an instrument in a, either a big band, you know, an orchestra or just a band, you want someone that's really good and you're going to look for the best. Like ideally for that one in a hundred or one in a thousand. Now, if you're looking for the one in, you know, one in five out of musicians, you might not be happy with the person that you get. Chances are you won't. I mean, they'll be, they might be a decent player, but they won't be you know, at the top of their class. Mm -hmm. So you're basically settling for second best. So that will happen even in the male pool now, right? So you'll probably be getting the best of the best in the, um, in the women that join the military because they're really striving. Well, it depends how low they put the standards, right? But in the male pool, in the men that join the military, you're going to get a bunch of guys that can't compare to the level that the military would have been um, you know, in the years before those policies You're were You're basically instituted. diluting the effectiveness of the military exactly. by, by lowering the standards uh, to meet the ability of the top yeah. 20 or 50% of women who join. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and we see this, you know, we see this in other fields as well that try to be inclusive. <laughs> There's so many things going on here simultaneously. Uh, you have to wonder, you know, what is going through the heads of the people who who are deciding on these policies, because most of them seem to be at a step or two removed from being on the field, for, for training people, for seeing the effectiveness in real time. Uh, so you have, um, I guess you have parts of the military that are very politically connected. And I think, uh, I think uh, the article, um, and Graham gets into this a, a little bit later, the, the motivations behind uh, instituting these policies. But obviously... Uh, these policies are so wrongheaded that they could only have been uh, directives made from a position of major ignorance. And so, you know, what are we seeing here? What, how is it that these mistakes can be made at such a level and be so wrongheaded? And the reason is you have some people in positions of power who are ideologically possessed, who are probably gaining some amount of uh, benefit by championing these policies. You know, I think it's a commie plot. I think that the Soviet Union never fell, and there's been a secret, a secret underground cell of commie, you know, Soviets who have been planning the destruction of Western civilization. So that's what uh, Solzhenitsyn warned about, right? Yeah. We warned that the commies were, were planning on destroying Western civilization back in the 70s. Well, I think he was right. And the way they've done it is now they've infiltrated all the leftist groups to totally <laughs> level the playing field, right? Level it, it, you know, turning it into a, a glass parking lot kind of thing where 
They've infiltrated now, you know, all the posi- all the influential positions, not just like the, in the leadership, but all the kind of the lobbyists that then influence the people in positions of power who may not be ideologically possessed, because now they there's so much social pressure to conform to the the progressive morality that they have to institute. They feel they have to institute these policies, otherwise the public outlash would be huge. You can't survive if you're the one that that went against a policy that was inclusive and diverse, right? Otherwise, because then you'd be a, a sexist xenophobe or something of the sort. So what the communists have done is that they've carried out this grand conspiracy in order to destroy Western militaries, which have been their, you know, the arm of empire for generations, to destroy it from within, all through identity politics. So I think this has been a coup for the underground Soviet <laughs> movement. Well, Harrison, uh, for those of you who are questioning what Harrison just said, so there's a a little bit of truth there and a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, obviously. There certainly, certainly there is a a kind of a, there is a a communist or or cultural Marxist indoctrination going on. I was going to say it's all Putin's fault, (laughs) but... uh, but Putin, the problem is that Putin isn't a leftist, so they can't blame him for this. Well, they don't even see it as a problem. That's the thing. Is that these, are, these are great policies, right? They don't see the, the downside. They don't see the negative consequences of these kinds of actions. And they're, they're blind to them because there are no consequences for those actions, at least immediately. Like for the politicians that make these, these kind of policy decisions, they don't have, they don't have skin in the game, like, like uh, Nassim Talib would say, mm-hmm. because they, they have no consequences. If anything... They should do these policies if they want to keep their positions, right? So they have no incentive to do the right thing. And that's the problem with politicians everywhere, is that they are not accountable for whether or not their policies work. I was listening to an interview just the other day. I can't remember who it was, um, but the point they made was that uh, they'd looked around and they were looking at the Scandinavian countries and the way they do policy. And he said, well, it's amazing. You know, this guy was American. He said, you go over there and you find out that what the government does is that they hire a bunch of experts to find out what the best solution might be, and then the government implements it. And he was saying, in America, that doesn't happen. And I think it was Jonathan Haidt, actually, in his interview with uh, John Anderson from Australia, coincidentally. And he said, that would be amazing, but he doesn't see that happening in the U.S. in his lifetime. And I was thinking, well, wow, because... Really, that's not what happens in the U.S. Government doesn't, you know, get a body of experts and say, okay, you guys, you know what the, what the issue is. Now, I want you guys to come up with the best solution possible. You know, no lobbyists, nothing like that. Just determine the solution. And then they bring a proposal and say, here's the solution. Here's why we think it works and why it will work. You know, here's the science. Here are all the studies. Try this out. And then the government says, great, thank you. Now we're going to put it in, into motion. The way it works in the U.S., there are lobby groups, right? And depending on your party, you'll have to, you say, okay, I'm a Democrat. I have to come up with a solution that fits with the, you know, the demographic of my voters. So everything becomes politicized at the expense of actual workability, Mm -hmm. at the expense of the solution actually potentially working. That doesn't matter or not. If you look at government, governments don't care if their policies work or not. That's the thing that people have to realize is that that is on the bottom of their list. They don't care one way or the other. They just want a solution that looks good on paper. And not only that looks good on paper, but that gets them a little paper, you know, in the form of money, in the form of bribes from lobbyists, because that's the way it works. You pay me, and then I will put through a bill 
that supports your position, your corporation, you'll get a lot of profit and proceeds from my bill, and then you know, then we're even and we can establish a relationship. And then once I retire, you know, I'll join your board. And then you have the revolving door where, you know, someone who works on a corporation then joins the government who then gives preferential contracts to that corporation that he just left from the the board of directors. Sometimes they're even on the board while they're in government, which is insane. Like that's not how these things should work, but that's how it works. And that's one of the ways in which these gender policies are instituted is that there are powerful, first of all, there are powerful lobbies and activists who have influence over these politicians. The politicians then become, you know, monetarily and emotionally and sometimes even ideologically enmeshed with these people. And it reaches the point where it is like a, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's like an emotional contagion where there's an official worldview, an official policy view where certain things fit into that little box and certain things don't. As long as it fits into the box, that's okay. It doesn't matter if it actually works or not. Mm-hmm. That's not the problem. Right. It's whether it fits in the box or not. So these gender policies in the, in the military fit in the box because the objective, the main objective is diversity, equity, inclusivity, all that. Those are the objectives. The objectives aren't having an effective, you know, top of the line military in this instance. That's not the goal. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, Does this make any sense? Well, no, it doesn't. For any project, for any invention, for any corporation, for any business, for any organization, you have to have your aims set out, right? What is your purpose? What is the ideal form of your thing? So you have that in mind. Say, okay, well, this is a military. Let's work this out. What should the the prime objective of a military be? Well, it should be as powerful as we can have it. Because, you know, if we are, you know, nasty, mean people, we want to invade a certain country. Maybe, you know, uh, in the modern world, there isn't so much invading and taking over anymore. Borders are relatively stable, um, at least in ways, you know, unrelated to military intervention. Israel notwithstanding, you know, they're the only country in the past 70 years that have gained territory through military might, you know, since World War II. But... Your goal is to have the strongest military possible with the best technology possible. For what purpose? Well, it's a deterrent against um, invasion. It's also, it gives you a a one-up, you know, really, if you want to talk like, you know, cold-hearted geopolitics, it gives you um, the ability to make threats and then instill the fear in the person you're threatening that you'll be able to follow through. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like a, a manipulative, nasty angle to it, and a genuine um, defensive capability to it. Like, those are two sides of the same coin. Like, unfortunately, like, one means the other. Now, it'll depend on who's making the policies, which one of those two capacities will be made an example of in the military, for instance. But either way, you need a strong, effective military. To do that, you need people that can do their jobs. And ironically, that's one of the things that the military is very good at. Now, um, one of the things that this is one of the things that Jordan Peterson has been bringing up in his various talks over the past several months, and it has to do with IQ. The military has been doing IQ research for generations. I think he says it goes back to World War II or even before World War II, because they wanted to figure out what could people do, right? What are our standards going to be when we have a, a person joining the military? 
what is their IQ and what does that mean for, you know, where we can place them? What kind of positions can they be put in? Who are best for certain positions? Like where, where should the top IQ people go? Where should the low IQ people go? Because ideally, for a military, they'd want to recruit anyone possible, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all males from age whatever to whatever in a, in a war situation, even women in certain positions, you know, where can we put everyone and have them best do their jobs so that we act as an effective military in whatever we're doing, especially in a, you know, a wartime situation? So they did all this research on IQ. And what they found was that, like, um, anyone with an IQ below something like 82 or 83 somewhere like that, which is 10% of the population, could not do anything. There was no position in the military where they would be, where they could do a job. They couldn't even follow simple instructions or simple written instructions. It was just like, sorry, we'd love to take you because we can use the cannon fodder, but there's nowhere for you to be. Mm-hmm. And any place we put you, you will do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So the military people aren't stupid, at least a lot of them. <laughs> Um, when, when functioning correctly, military people aren't stupid. You get a lot of stupidity in the military just like anywhere else, especially when politics is involved. But for people who, are, who join the military and actually are competent, they know the score. Like, they know what's going on. They know what they're looking for. And I guess this is just a, you know, a long way of saying what we've already said. What does this lead to? Well, when you get rid of all that, what do you end up with? You end up with a, a weakened military. You know, which is like basically falling apart from within. It is not serving its original purpose. So what we've seen happen is that the purpose of a military, in this case the Australian military, but this is happening all over, especially in Western democracies, is that the purpose of the military has ceased to be an effective fighting force. And it has become, like the purpose now has to become um, a place of equity and diversity. Yeah. Well, you know, what's what's interesting, all that, uh, especially in terms of, uh, like we're talking about the, the ADF in Australia in particular today. Um, Australia, even though it's on the other side of the world from where we are, North Carolina and the U.S., is as Western as it gets, in a sense. And Australia has a lot in common uh, with the U.S. on many fronts. They're part of the, the five eyes of surveillance in the U.S. I think it's... Uh, uh, United States, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and, and Australia. There's a massive NSA infrastructure within Australia. There's also um, a lot of legislation going through against anti-vaxxers uh, right now. When Jordan Peterson visited Australia, a lot of the mainstream media there got on the, you know, uh, on the bandwagon to demonize the guy. And I think the prime minister a few years ago, uh, Abbott, had said that he would shirt front Putin. So you have a lot of these uh, political, social, and cultural things in common with the U.S., which is interesting to me because it's sort of like it's an entire kind of bag that they're buying into what, what we would now consider Western trends and ideology, where it's almost, you know, you can't have one without the other. So that's another dimension to all of this. Why, you know, why would Australia agree on on the whole thing? What is it about this country that would accept all of these ridiculous policies and and ways of thinking willy-nilly? And I I guess it's a kind of a a deal with the devil, uh, in a sense. You you know, if, if you're a 
quote unquote ally of the U.S., uh, you're going to do their bidding on every front, and that includes the the ideological. Uh, how else to explain, you know, why it it would take all of these measures to include women uh, in the military and lower the standards, as we were saying a little earlier, and make it a less effective fighting force? And this is by no means a uh, you know we're not championing uh, militarism. We're not we're not saying that that. You know, you can't let, you know, you can't let the military get get uh, subverted and, and, and become weakened. You know, most of what the military does in the world today uh, is arguably, I don't know, I, I would argue a, a lot of it is unnecessary and a lot of it is posturing and a lot of it is uh, for the purposes of, of being a quote-unquote strong ally for the U.S. Because whenever one of these coalitions are formed in the Middle East, you hear about countries like Australia like Canada, like the UK, who throw in their 800 soldiers and, and some of their armaments, uh, just so that the US can say, we formed the coalition, and uh, we're doing this together to legitimize whatever actions they're taking. But as a kind of a petri dish or, or sampling of how ideology has so, uh, so far gone into uh, subverting what are traditionally uh, masculine or male jobs, I can think of no better example than what this article describes about what we're now seeing in Australia. Well, I just say I, I'm a, a firm believer in having a you know a great military for every country. Um, I don't really care which country it is because, like I said, the military it's like a Schrodinger's cat in a sense. It's like if you have a good military, it can go one way or the other. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a good military, mm-hmm. right? Um, any country will need it in order to protect itself. Even a military that is a bad military, bad in, in a moral sense and, uh, you know, not in the, the operational sense. Like if you're a, a nasty country and you've been like oppressing other countries and you've been invading, like let's say even like Israel, if Israel were to lose their military capability overnight, I don't think that would be a good thing because all the people that Israel as a nation has oppressed will then see an easy target. And that just creates more warfare. Like, more warfare is never the answer. And in our world, um, you know, militaries are a necessity for the vast majority of countries, the ones that aren't just small, you know, vassal states that don't um, really have any need for a very strong military. But especially when we look at, like, the major powers, like, they all have their militaries, and they're all necessary to a degree for the just for the stability of the global system. And like I'm saying, I'm not saying the global system is great, but I'm saying that stability needs to be there because the alternative would be even worse. Sure, it is a counterbalance. Uh, certainly you think about Libya and, uh, and how NATO went in there. Now, NATO, you know, arguably one of the strongest military forces in the world, if not the strongest. Uh, and you have to wonder what might have happened if, uh, if Gaddafi had paid more attention to mm-hmm. his military. Uh, what, you know, 30,000 dead, what might have he had, have done uh, or could have done if, if he had a strong military and was able in at least to some degree to stand up to NATO? Same thing with Syria. Now, arguably, they got a lot of help from Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, but they also were able to hold out for long enough on their own until they were able to receive help from those who were in a position and a strength to give them some assistance against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So, sure. Well, uh, let's continue reading this article. 
So we talked about, um, or Graham, rather, talked about this um, Elizabeth Broderick's report on the review of the treatment of women in the ADF. Um, so he says that despite acknowledging that was the potential backlash against uh, against women who um, accept these preferential uh, policies, so despite acknowledging this, many of Broderick's recommendations include gender-specific initiatives that risk being perceived as further preferential treatment, driving a greater wedge between male and female ADF personnel. Perhaps the most troubling recommendation is the targeted recruitment and transfer of women to male-dominated professions that have less female uptake. In practice, this risks techniques akin to coaxing in the recruitment process if these roles are not the preferred choice of female candidates. So a quick comment right here is that one thing I'm not that I'm not arguing for is that no women should be in the military, mm-hmm. but there should be a very rigorous investigation into the best positions for um, for women in the military. And one of the best ways of doing that is to see which areas of the military they want to be in. So again, this comes back to the, like the wage gap and the different choices between men and women in the careers that they choose. Well, women tend to choose careers that on average are lower paying than male careers because males work longer. They put themselves into less favorable conditions in order to make more money to a greater degree and in a greater number than women tend to do. And of course, these are all tendencies. They're not black and white, um, you know, all or nothing categories here. So in the military, what the, what they found, according to this, is that women have, they have their preferences for which positions in which, uh, you know, areas of the military they want to work in. But these policies are, are going to be like, uh, okay, well, we need more women in combat, for instance. So we're going to like coax these women into these combat positions that they don't want to even be in, that they wouldn't choose ordinarily. So he continues writing, the issue of coaxing candidates into certain roles during the recruitment process are often raised by both male and female personnel who find themselves in roles they would not have chosen, but for the influence of recruiters, particularly if their first selection was a lower recruitment priority. This leads to personnel seeking career transfers, which are often rejected, as early as their initial training. Misleading recruitment tactics were also revealed in the Searle versus Commonwealth class action lawsuit brought against the Royal Australian Navy. Accumulatively, these behaviors not only create significant costs to the taxpayer, but also damage the capability of individuals to perform their duties to the highest standard. Again, this is to be expected. When you force people into positions that they don't want to be in, they're going to perform less well. They're going to request transfers. They're not going to be great at the job. You can't just, like, that is the definition of totalitarianism, to decide where people, what position people are going to take. Okay, we need this many people here. You are going to go here, right? Now, it's kind of soft totalitarianism in the sense that they coax them. They convince them that that's what they want so that they the recruits will choose that. Quickly, it becomes clear that they would not have made that choice. That they do not want to do that. And then it creates a a mess, but for the little totalitarians, that doesn't matter because, again, what's most important? Not having an effective military, but diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So Graham continues, systematic preferential treatment is just the tip of the iceberg. Additional complaints have been made off the record about preferential treatment in military discipline, manual labor and work tasks, training exercise, postings, and performance reviews that significantly influence promotions and career progression on a daily basis. 
Whether or not these perceptions and observations are accurate, the cultural challenge becomes more acute if male personnel suspect their female colleagues are not capable of performing to the standards men are expected to meet, even if this suspicion is a result of poorly managed affirmative action. Regardless of how powerful or influential senior military leaders perceive themselves to be, they cannot order their personnel to believe something that conflicts with their observations and values. Therefore, a more effective style of persuasion will be needed if affirmative action initiatives are to continue. In 2015, the United States Marine Corps released a year-long study on the capability of a mixed-gender battalion. It was found that all male units performed resoundingly better than mixed-gendered units and highlighted a 1992 study which emphasized the importance and moral necessity of prioritizing operational capabilities over accommodating the interests or desires of individuals and groups. This suggests that the road to gender equality has been far from ideal in the United States military as well. Mm -hmm. Now, first thing right there, again, that supports my point that I made earlier that when you get down to it, the military actually know what they're doing. The military knows what's best for the military when you take the politics out of the equation. It's just like looking at the numbers, right? What's your account balance? Is it negative or positive? It's very simple. Um, and the conclusions like that they come to are very simple. Like maybe they didn't know beforehand, but they did the study and they found out. And it makes sense. It makes sense for reasons that Baskerville gets into in his new politics of sex book. But, um, just a couple of comments on those paragraphs I just read. So this one thing. Mm -hmm. So the cultural challenge, I'll reread this bit. The cultural challenge becomes more acute if male personnel suspect their female colleagues are not capable of performing to the standards men are expected to meet. Now, he doesn't get into this, but that is a big problem. Because um, I mentioned earlier the idea of um, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat or going into a, a war situation and having to physically exert yourself to a level, to a high level, right? So this is actually a very pragmatic, practical problem that the military faces. When you have a combat unit, for instance, that is going into a war zone, especially like a special ops kind of mission, where you've got a small team going in and let's say one of your guys gets wounded. This is one of the reasons why all male units performed resoundingly better in that study is because all male units, when one man goes down and he's got like a partner with him, that guy can get him out, mm -hmm. right? Um, can carry him like physically. Now, in the vast majority of cases, if the man gets shot and is wounded, the woman can't lift him. She can't carry him. Like, she can't save him. Right. So she has difficulty not only protecting herself, but, uh, but helping to protect and, right. and, and save her fellow soldier. Right. So this goes back to something you said earlier, Alan, about the military camaraderie in a group. Mm -hmm. now, so let's say you're going into a war zone, Right. If you're going to do that, you have to be able to trust everyone on your team. You have to be able to trust that they'll be able to protect you. And when you have that like circle of mutual trust, you act as a group. You act as a unit. Jonathan Haidt talks about this in uh, in his book, uh, The Righteous Mind. About it basically creates a little hive mind. Your act, uh, a military unit, um, is acting as a single organism, and you can't get that kind of unity of purpose or of um, identity, like being, if there are these problems going on and that come up with mixed gender units. First of all, there's the, all the, the sexual things going on where yes. there's relationships and, and all that. But also, just think about it. If you're going into a, a battle zone and if you're not sure that the people you're with can help you, can protect you if you get wounded, and there's all this mutual distrust, that is, that's not a good thing. 
Like, it's not going to work out. You're not going to trust them. And, and worse, if that actually happens, you're not going to be able to get out of that situation. You're going to be left to the wolves. Like, yeah. you're going to die. It does add a whole, uh, a whole level of um, disorder to the kind of tribal unit that they try to create inside of a military. Uh, because, you know, on top of that, you have all of these, you know, like you were saying, Harrison, uh, there, there's a whole level of sexual attraction and, and mm-hmm. uh, a fraternizing, kind of fraternizing a, a confusion of roles. You know, what, what is the male soldier to do or think about the, the female soldier who, you know, there, there's a kind of a, a, a natural instinct on the part of males to protect uh, not only their fellow male soldiers, obviously, but women, but women even more so. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so there's this kind of double uh, burden that's placed upon the male soldier who would be um, serving with a female soldier. And there's some other issues as well. You know, intuitively, I, I think a lot of soldiers who, and this was a, a kind of a, an interesting um, quote from what you just read, regardless of how powerful or influential senior military leaders perceive themselves to be, they cannot order their personnel to believe something that conflicts with their observations and values. So you have male soldiers who are observing uh, the, the level of competence that, that they're experiencing in training or on the field with female soldiers. And, and yet uh, from on high, they're being told, no, what you're observing is not correct. You have to, you have to think a, a certain way about uh, women serving with you. Um, and, and if you're not, then you're subject to discipline or, or, um, or being, uh, released. So there, there's this whole other kind of problem that's presented when, when men are forced to serve with women. And then there's a, there's an interesting quote from Baskerville in New Politics of Sex. He says, soldiers are beginning to doubt the judgment of their leaders, although they are rarely asked or permitted to express their concerns publicly. Ordering women into land combat also creates a moral and cultural contradiction. Violence against women is all right, as long as it happens at the hands of the enemy. So <laughs> that's a whole other level of it as well, I think. You know, women and children first. This is, this is kind of one of the imperatives of, of militaries or even fathers of families. You want to protect your, your women and children first. And yet, in the name of equality, you're sending women to die first, effectively. Uh, so that, that's a piece of this also that, that seems to be at odds with um, the kind of feminist uh, influence of, uh, of, of recruiting women soldiers into the, the military. Just a few, uh, a few paragraphs. I'm going to excerpt from the rest of the article. I won't read the, the whole rest of the article. There are many roles within military organizations besides frontline combat roles. There are also multiple careers within the ADF that attract and retain a larger proportion of competent service women, as has been acknowledged in ADF reports. Instead of fostering the genuine career objectives of these individuals during recruitment and throughout their career, it appears that senior military leaders and their advisors are more interested in short-term gains in public perception. So that's exactly what we mm-hmm. had mentioned before about... I, I'm not a military expert. I don't know all of the divisions of the military and all the different positions and, you know, who should or or can hold hold which positions. 
Um, but it just makes sense on the surface of it that, um, that women are going to be better in certain roles than others. Men are going to be better in certain roles than others too. Just, just even just by virtue of physical strength, it's just common sense. But, uh, continuing on for a bit further down. What makes the ADF's road to gender equality more complex is the advice from activists and interest groups with very limited understanding of military service and the complexity of communal living, highly arduous and dangerous working conditions, as well as the absolute need to have confidence in your peers. So that's, again, that's just what I said earlier. All these things need to be taken into account, and the people making the policies, the activist groups, and the you know, the spineless politicians who are just worried about re-election, they don't know what the military is about. They don't know about, you know, exactly what Graham says here, the complexity of communal living. What does it mean to communally live in a military setting? How does that relate to combat effectiveness? How does that relate to morale and, um, and just, you know, mental hygiene to the degree that there is mental hygiene and, you know, in that kind of situation? the difficult and dangerous working conditions and the need to have confidence in your peers. These are things the activists don't even know, don't know about, don't consider, don't care about again, because that's not the issue. They don't care. Those things are not important. The only thing important is that there are 50% of the positions held by women. The ends justify the means, right? We, we talked about this on previous shows. Um, you know, all, all reality, all objective fact be damned. The policy is what's important the words and the power behind them, uh, inclusivity, equality, et cetera, et cetera. That's the only thing that matters. And unfortunately, you know, we, we haven't quite seen it yet, but there is going to be a backlash. And, uh, and ultimately, it's going to hurt the very same people who are proponents of a lot of these policies. And it's going to hurt a lot of other people. You know, that's very sad, but I, I think we'll, we'll be reading about and hearing about developments in, uh, in the U.S. and other Western countries where all of these policies um, come back to bite them mm-hmm. and, and in, a, in a probably a, a, an awful, god-awful way. And even internationally, even just the PR image, like uh, it's one thing to have just uh, a military that is, to have a subpar military, that's one thing. But then there's the, the added propaganda advantage that your so-called enemies have, like... Uh, I've seen Russian TV reports where they're where they make fun of the U.S. military for the, all this gender stuff. Like the the U.S. military is a laughingstock in other countries because of these kind of policies. I'm I'm assuming the the Australian will be too, or if if not already is. I don't you know go out looking for this kind of thing, but that is a fact. Like people around the world are laughing at Western militaries because they've gone so soft, mm-hmm. right? And uh, one more quote from the article, and then I'll, 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 we'll put this one to rest. Most significantly, there remains an ongoing expectation that personnel within military units abide by orders to conduct difficult tasks, including uniquely violent behavior. Although the advance of technology has facilitated greater distances from enemy combatants in most cases, the underlying purpose of a defense force is to visit violence on those who would do its community harm. When considering this, the condemnation of masculine behavior is contrary to the expectations placed on deployed personnel. This incongruity is unavoidably problematic and has led to the disenchantment of many combat veterans, particularly those who have served on the front line. Mm -hmm. Again, just repeating a point we've already made, that the purpose of the military is to have manly dudes who can hurt people. 
really. Like, that's what it comes down to. It's more than that, of course, but that is an essential part of a military. It's just, there's no way around that. It is uh, an institution of violence for the purpose of defense and offense when it, uh, you know, when it becomes corrupt, I'd say. But uh, maybe, Ilan, do you have anything to say on that? Well, you know, so, so we're talking about the feminization of militaries in the West and uh, using Australia as an example. But there, there seems to be a even larger kind of uh, process afoot that we're seeing in other areas as well. So there's one article that was written several months ago uh, that we had on SOT, and uh, it was named Jens Stoltenberg and Angelina Jolie Join Forces in NATO Intervention to Promote Gender Equality. So um, basically, Angelina Jolie and, and this, uh, this numbskull Stoltenberg come out with this uh, op-ed in The Guardian several months back entitled, Why NATO Must Defend Women's Rights. And um, it's presented as a joint mission to secure the, quote, fundamental promise in the UN Charter of Equal Rights and Dignity for Women. And um, so basically... You know, the author writes, one rubs one's eyes in disbelief, written in defense of an organization that is the primary source of warmongering by its leader and chief propagandist and an Anne Rand devotee and self-stylized, quote-unquote, humanitarian. Uh, the op-ed could be mistaken for satire. It, it really is something else. Um, so, uh, basically... Um, the article goes on to say that, um, you know, of course, we've had um, NATO intervention in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria. Uh, we've now seen developments, not now, actually, for many years, NATO encirclement of, uh, of Russia and China, um, and these gigantic um, kind of aggressive uh, military exercises surrounding the two countries that have been quite aggressive and, and threatening in some ways. They come right up to the borders of these countries. Uh, in short, needless to say, NATO is not exactly a, a peacekeeping country. Um, or not country. Or, or organization, rather. So uh, the article, the, the author goes on to say, uh, basically represents a desperate attempt to rebuild NATO's threadbare credibility in the face of a really lousy record. And the reasons they give for this kind of op-ed is, you know, they say sexual violence is one of the prime reasons for female oppression. And this accounts in large part for why it is often dangerous to be a woman in a war zone today than it is to be a soldier. Conflicts in which women's bodies are, and rights are systematically abused last longer, cause deeper wounds, and are much harder to resolve and overcome. So they argue that the, that the political aim of making such claims is ending gender-based violence is a, is a vital issue of peace and security as well as of social justice. NATO can be a leader in this effort. Uh, this is propaganda at its, at its worst and most obvious. We watched a film um, some months back called The Red Pill where... So several years ago, we had the Boko Haram 
uh, story where where this kind of Al Qaeda terrorist outfit in Africa was kidnapping uh, young girls uh, scores at a time, and so you had um, you had Michelle Obama, you know, doing these tweets with with signs, "Bring our girls back," and and uh, just correction, it wasn't one at a time; it was one one operation, right, where they where they kidnapped a bunch of girls. They may have done it like uh, other times after that, but the the big news was this one time. Yeah, there was a big one, and uh, and I I think I think there might have been some other stories. Well, where, where like are you going to give the, are you gonna, are you going to give the context for the whole thing? Is well, that part of your point? Well, uh, my point is that um, what this film, The Red Pill, did so well in in stating was that there are so many boys and young men who were outright killed and slaughtered by the same group mm-hmm. that um, that got overshadowed by the fact that these young girls were kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have this whole other uh, level of, of violence. Um, you know, the, these boys were, and young men were, they lost their lives. Uh, but, but very little was uh, discussed on that area of the Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and it terrorist. wasn't like I w- I'd say it was even worse than being overshadowed. It's that the the boys being killed were ignored. So here's the story. This is the, like what gives it its punch and its impact is that for for months and months and months there would be reports um, coming out of Africa. Oh, Boko Haram, you know, invades village, kills thirty people, kills a hundred people, kills eighty people. You know, villagers killed. And this this went on for months and months and months. No media traction. No Western politicians said anything. And then Boko Haram wasn't getting any media attention. So they realized that their strategy wasn't working. So then one time, well, maybe the first time, but they hadn't done this before, one time, then they staged this operation to go in this little girl's school and kidnap a bunch of girls. Didn't kill them. They just took them hostage, which is bad enough in itself. But, you know, mercifully, they did, you know, or, you know, thank God they weren't killed. Right. And then this is when the media exploded. Mm-hmm. You know, all the Western newspapers and magazines were talking about it. The the network, TV stations, the politicians, everyone came out. There were campaigns. There were TV commercials. Save our girls. Bring back our girls or whatever. And the, the point is that this had been happening for months. You know, boys and villagers, men, Boko Haram had been killing them for months with no media coverage whatsoever. And then some girls were kidnapped in a PR campaign basically to get attention and everyone went crazy. So the well in the red pill, the 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 woman who is telling this story um, just points out that there was there was no empathy, no compassion for any of the the boys or men that had been killed by Boko Haram. It was all about the girls that had been kidnapped for ransom, basically, with the potential of being saved. And I, I can't remember the the outcome of the story if they were released or not, but there were you know there were there there were other stories, hints that this was basically just. Or, and acts like this were basically just PR moves that they'd they'd kidnap a bunch of girls, maybe and even release them. Like even Boko Haram in all these previous raids mm-hmm. hadn't killed the women and children. Right. It was you, you had to really dig deep into the articles to see that it was it was mostly or only males in many of those instances. Um, so that that kind of feeds into this, I think. Getting back to uh, Jolie and Stoltenberg's op-ed. You know, the, the author of the article says quite rightly that their appeal is the weaponization of feminism in the service of NATO and of imperialist reaction. 
It is to conceal its predatory aims that Stoltenberg Jolie attempt to recast NATO as a tool of female emancipation. So you have the, the, the kind of uh, pseudo-moral backing of, of feminism uh, behind NATO now in, in, in the form of this op-ed that women are being um, you know, sexually uh, abused, which is true enough in war. But it's clearly a kind of a bolstering of, of NATO and its aggressive action as a kind of protector of women. Well, and that was the, one of the humanitarian rationales they gave for going into Afghanistan. I mean, they just pulled them out right. of their hat. It's not, this, these aren't the reasons for, okay, so in terms of all the policies, you know, I've been arguing that the real reason is to institute these policies, right? Now, in terms of war, the real reason isn't to institute these policies. It's kind of like the polar opposite. When, whenever these policies are done on institutions, it's like, that's the goal. Okay, diversity is the goal, right? And then they're implemented and, and things go crazy and, and fall apart. Now, in, in other situations, like in geopolitics, in foreign intervention, the stated goal is something like a humanitarian goal to save the women, like with the Taliban in Afghanistan, when that has nothing to do with why they're going in there in the first place. And those objectives aren't even... Tr- like. There's no effort to achieve that objective. There's no way to achieve it. No. It's just a, it's just words, and that's it. Yes. So, so it's you know this is uh, this is one way in which NATO is appropriating feminism and ideology to bolster its cause. So that really got my goat. The author finishes his article by saying, you know, without a trace of shame, the op-ed targets. Ukraine and Syria, as in particular need of NATO's gender crusade. This on behalf of an organization that supported fascists in the first conflict and worked with Islamic extremists, such as al-Nusra in the other. So, yeah, this would be an instance where uh, feminism is being used um, by an institution to, you know, it's it's effectively another cover for its aggression around the world protect the women mm-hmm. all right to uh one final thing in the last several minutes of the show i want to read a few more passages from baskerville's book on uh new politics of sex this is in the section on globalizing sex um, on the section on warfare <clears throat> coming back to some of the earlier issues we were talking about so he writes Accounts of women in combat or other physically demanding tasks sound like the misadventures of the Keystone Cops. Quote, Time previously devoted to marksmanship had to be dropped in favor of classes in contraception. End quote. Women are permitted to keep their hair and wear jewelry, and female officers may carry umbrellas to protect their hair. Women are, or at least were, allowed to keep stuffed toy animals in their bunks. Orientation videos tell female recruits it's okay to cry. Drill sergeants and others responsible for maintaining disciplinary standards must instead be sensitive to the recruits' feelings and check their discipline, lest someone cry or lodge a complaint about trainee abuse. It changes the way you think, says one. It's like you are protecting your own interests. In other words, it politicizes military life and transforms the relationship between soldiers as it has already transformed that between men and women from one of camaraderie and solidarity into an unending contest for power. Women require extensive accommodations in battlefield situations, alterations in military structure and organization, and expensive technological changes, 
Weapons and equipment are redesigned so women can use them, even when the results are inferior. Prior to deployments, women suddenly become pregnant in large numbers and are excused from duty. When combat actually commences, commanders are flooded with requests from female soldiers for transfers to the rear. With little fear of punishment, women simply refuse to engage in training exercises and battlefield operations, desert their posts, break down in tears, and otherwise exhibit behavior that in men is, or used to be, called cowardice. In the Navy, most female recruits preferred traditional jobs comfortably ashore to dirty work on the rolling waves, and they are duly accommodated. The Navy has been pressured to lengthen submarines in order to accommodate women. In almost every instance, the good of equal opportunity takes precedence over the good of the service. As a physiologist wrote in the Navy Times, the Navy's recent enthusiasm for putting more and more women aboard ship makes little sense unless the Navy doesn't mind sacrificing survivability and possibly the lives of its sailors for the sake of enhancing opportunities for women. Sex among soldiers and pregnancy present additional complications. Even pregnant women are not automatically discharged. They may abrogate their commitment and leave without penalty, or they can carry on pretending to be soldiers, though with so many exemptions and privileges that they become more of a burden, even more of a burden to the units than usual. Mitchell provides numerous testimonies from women who develop second thoughts when they discover the realities of combat. Quote, I'm a woman and a mother before I'm a soldier, one said in tears. If this is the test, I'm going to fail. A lot of other women are too, and I guess we're just going to have to accept that. Striking is the defensive tone of these women's testimony, as if they feel they must be ashamed of the realities of being women. Quote, A mother should be left with her children, said another. It doesn't fit with the whole scheme of the women's movement, but I think we have to reconsider what we're doing. One seems to detect a tone of disappointment at having to jettison some ideological principle that would otherwise hold the status of sacred orthodoxy, and that they are made to feel they have betrayed. I'd rather be home cooking and cleaning, all those things I've been complaining about for 26 years, said a third. I don't think females should be over there. They can't handle it, said a fourth. The feminists back home who say we have a right to fight are not out here sitting in the heat carrying an M16 and a gas mask, spending 16 hours on the road every day and sleeping in fear you're going to get gassed. As Mitchell adds with understatement, their male comrades were understandably resentful. And skipping a bit, an official survey found that more than 92.5% of army women said they did not want to be assigned to units such as the infantry, armor, artillery, and combat engineers. You know, it's, it was kind of awkward for me to read that even the first time, mm-hmm. but really it just, it makes, you know, it makes sense when you, when you think about it. It's like, just like you, like, <laughs> it's so like un-PC, right, to say that uh, women shouldn't be in, in certain positions, but, well, part of it is that they shouldn't be, well, certain people in general shouldn't, shouldn't be in certain positions um, in general, Right. If you aren't smart enough, you can't be a, you know, a theoretical physicist. If you don't know math, for instance, you can't be a, a prize fighter if you don't have certain muscle mass and technique and skill. And you can't be um, you know, a combat military personnel if you don't have certain skills and strengths and, uh, you know, and capabilities. And when you have a, like a, a bracket of, of skill you know, in the top like 1% of something... Like, again, I'll come back to strength, just physical strength. Like, if you look at the bell curve and you look at the, the strongest people on the planet, the top whatever percent, maybe 1%, might even be more than that, are all men. 
And that's just biology, right? Men are, are physically built for... Well, th- I, I read an article recently that, uh, that argued that men are biologically evolved for warfare, well, for hunting, but uh, that, that applies to both. Like the reflexes, upper body strength, all, like there, there are several biological features of males that seem to be um, basically, well, they seem to be designed for combat, for hunting, for you know, spear throwing and detecting projectiles, and for for fighting for in that upper body strength, and that's just a biological reality. So when you have all these women, it's like Baskerville points out, it's like these women are they're feeling guilty for being women. So the the all these affirmative action policies that are promoting women in the military, they're actually making women feel guilty for being women, for wanting a family, for not wanting to to engage in these difficult, you know, physically strenuous um, professions, you know, where you might die, mm-hmm. where chances are in certain, certain situations you will die, because there are situations in the military where you're, you know, you're on a suicide mission and you know it. That may not have been the, the, initial, um, the initial goal of the mission, but it can become clear in a, in a combat mission that you're not going to survive this one, and what are you going to do? It's like, and you, you see that in warfare, and uh, we've seen it several times in Syria with the Russians, um, and especially, you know, when one guy will get captured, it's like, and you know, that's the end. It's like, so when, when women are put in this position, and I'd say not just, not women in general, because I'd say perhaps at that top, you know, 1% of women, there'll be a, a small percentage that can meet the, like the, the male levels in certain regards, but for the vast majority, it won't be the case. Because, you know, the, that, that top 1% of the, the strongest people in, among people are all men. And maybe you'll get one woman in there or two. You know, I don't know, the, I don't know the, the, exact statistics, the exact statistics, but it'll be, you know, it'll, there will be a great disparity at that level. And so when women join the military, and that, like that one, one quote from one of the women really struck me when she said, well, now I realize, you know, I've been complaining about doing the dishes and cleaning the house for all these years, and now that's what I want. Mm-hmm. It's like... What, you know, what can, for, for all the people out there, you know, who hate doing dishes and, and, and cleaning, it's like, think about what conditions would make you want to do that, right? right. It's got to be pretty tough. But well, yeah, well, just one more thing, um, just to give a preview for, for the rest of this section that uh, we're not going to get into. Um, Baskerville basically argues that there's a, a large part of this is, um, well, one of the big consequences of this um, these gender policies in the U.S. military has been this welfare system um, benefits. So basically, it's created a, a, an incentive for people to join the military just for welfare benefits. Um, and this, because of the, the way the policies have been structured, um, th- this does apply to a large degree to women, to men in some degrees, but primarily to women because of the extra advantages for women joining the military. And he gives the example of pregnancy. So, you know, a woman... Um, you know, a woman with low morals can join the military to get benefits, knowing that she can just get pregnant and then um, live off those benefits and not have to go to combat, for instance. Now, you know, not all women who join the military are going to do that, but there are going to be a percentage that, that do do that. And the, the stats show that this that does happen. Like, uh, like Baskerville said, before any, like, any deployment, the number of women who, who suddenly get pregnant spikes. Right? And that's hard to believe that's a coincidence. Um, but again, none of these things are considered when, when designing these policies. And um, 
and you see the results. It just you you end up with a um, an institution that is just falling apart from within. It's decaying, and you know it's sad. <laughs> it is. I, I uh, separate from the entire trend of uh, um, that that we've been seeing here and uh, and discussing uh, across the board and positions. I just want to just a last thought here and a, and a question to you, Harrison. So there seems to be two things going on uh, in particular with this, uh, this Australian military story. And that is, you know, the, the first kind of um, is including women, lowering standards and making the military weaker. But I'm, I'm wondering if one of the other reasons possibly uh, that, that there is this big push for inclusivity among women is, is the general kind of movement to wartime politics uh, thinking, uh, programming, if you will, on some level, that requires a certain amount of, of women identifying with and even participating in militaries of the Western world who are on board with this kind of, first it was the war on terror, and now it's kind of uh, transformed into uh, the, the war against Russia. Um, traditionally, you've had women... Um, protesting and, and fighting against um, military intervention and, and unnecessary war. So I wonder if on some level there is this kind of, um, you know, there, there's another idea, support our troops. So what if, the, what if part of the troops are, are consisting of women? Uh, does that get transplanted? Does that thought get, you know, do, do we overlook the whole bogus war on terror uh, or do some of us overlook that in favor of supporting women? Um, so I can't help but wonder if, if what we're seeing here is also uh, the programming of, of women in their thinking about war and, and needless wars of aggression. Yeah, well, that may be the case. Um, I'd, I'd think it would be more an effect than a, um, a stated aim for these policies. But, yeah, I think that you can see that direction, like... Um, well, you do see it where if this becomes an issue, if inclusivity and diversity in the military becomes the goal, then for the women and male activists for whom that is their goal, they will then look at the military and not see it a pro not see a problem with all the useless, expensive wars of intervention that are going on around the world. That won't be the issue. They won't care about that. Now it's just, oh, well, the, the army, you know, the military isn't diverse enough. So that, that's the thing they're protesting about, and uh, they don't, you know, nothing is said about the actual wars that the military is, ranging, is, is waging. And then as that whole dynamic develops, and you get more women in the military, so all of a sudden you find yourself, well, you've been arguing this whole time and, and protesting for inclusion in the military, and now they're there. There's still, you know, still some things to get right, right, you know, the percentages need to be, be a bit higher, but now you're invested in the military. And you're invested in those women in the military, and then naturally you'll be somewhat invested in the the foreign policy decisions made by the leaders that direct that military into another country for no reason at all, or no good reason at all. Mm -hmm. And then the effect is that yeah, there's there's less um, less speaking out and less you know negative feeling against the you know actual wars of aggression. Losing sight of the big picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, and on that note, I'll just leave you with a 
headline from Sputnik just um, last week, I believe it was. Record number of Israeli women to serve in combat units. Reports. Just read the first paragraph. A thousand Israeli women have volunteered to serve in the armed forces combat units, the highest figure compared to those recorded in previous years. So there you have it. Israel is at the is at the top of their game when it comes to gender inclusivity. Of course, they have mandatory military service for all military-aged Israeli citizens, um, unless you manage to get a, an exemption for religious purposes or something of the sort. But um, yeah, I'm sure Hezbollah is laughing. Yes. But on that note, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, we'll be back next week. Tune in tomorrow for Newsreel. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.